Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Hi Abe. I didn't get a hi, John, but I, I, I I'm hi, sorry. Abe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got to I got to <laughs> confess. I was up most of the night. We have a new puppy. It's a Havanese. She's like 10 and a half weeks old. And when people said it's like having a baby, it really is like having a baby. So I am I am the worst for wear and I sound vaguely inebriated and I'm mostly just beyond exhausted. So um Mostly. That's why I didn't say that's why I didn't say hi Abe, though I meant to say hi Abe, though I also meant to say my life isn't worth a plug nickel, but okay. Um <laughs> uh senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. You cannot create trade in your children. I'm just making sure our listeners understand that. Okay, it's that yes, distinction. Yes, yes. Yes. Well that 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 ship has sailed. My um and uh associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our, our our old friend, commentary contributor, uh, Wilfred Riley, uh, author of Hate Crime Hoaxes and Taboo and uh, forthcoming. You have some forthcoming stuff. Yeah, well, Did, got a, is it titled? Uh, no, not yet. Actually, okay. I, I have two more books uh, probably coming out next year, but we're still in the in the contract stage for those right okay. now. Well, I hate you because you have two more books coming out, and I have no more books coming out. Noah has a book coming out, but neither of, uh, Christine will have a book coming out. I don't have a book. Abe doesn't have a book, so we're, we we envy you. We I'm envy sure you, and we're hostile toward you across the board soon. Okay, but we we're hostile toward you. You're coming into a hostile <laughs> podcasting environment. Uh, which, which, uh, which brings up, uh, we, we like to talk to you about everything, but, um, and of course, everybody on the right in the podcasting world has been talking to you, uh, Will Riley, though commentary was the first to publish you on this subject, uh, an excerpt from your book, Hey Crime Hoaxes, but everybody's been talking to you about, uh, Jussie Smollett and the, uh, and the verdict, the five of six guilty verdicts in the trial, uh, in Chicago, um, because this is the object lesson of the hate crime hoax uh, trend that, or the the sort of most blatant example of the hate crime hoax that you uh, described, um, enumerated, uh, made a kind of a data set for, and laid out the grounds of in your pathbreaking book, Hate Crime Hoaxes, which, as I say, we excerpted in commentary two or three years ago. Uh, am I right that this is, this is the hate crime hoax to end all hate crime hoaxes or have there been others you think are comparable? I, I think this one might be the archetype, which is why it gained so much attention. I mean, th this really has all of the elements. I mean, the, there's the wild cinematic story. There's the fact that everyone in kind of normal up middle class life is expected to believe it. There's the sort of it, the police time being wasted at great length. I'm from Chicago originally. He cost the city $137,000, I believe. Detectives were viewing all of the camera footage from the high rises around where the incident allegedly took place for days. Um, there, there's, you know, the inevitable discovery that this didn't occur. And in Jesse Smollett's case, there's the additional element that he never admitted that this was a hoax. And he continued blaming the entire thing on American racism. Uh, the Nigerian guys now apparently uh, attacked him. 
because they might have been homophobic. I don't know. No, no, no. They were the his attorney alleged that they were doing a security team. Yeah, they were in whiteface. That was that his attorney floated initially this absurd proposition that they underneath their masks, they were wearing Joker like makeup. Which made uh, him assume that they, yeah, and also the fit. What should have given it away for everybody is that it involved in noose. I haven't read a hate crime that legitimately involved a noose. They are almost always a, a hoax when there's a noose involved. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't heard. I mean, so you you, you dropped it on me there. I hadn't, I hadn't heard the white face claim. I had heard the almost as ridiculous claim that the Nigerian guys had beaten him up. It for real, essentially, and that this was an attempt to kind of join his security team or possibly the result of some some latent bigotry that they had. But, yeah, I, I think that this is the the addition. One of the things that you often do see with hate crime hoaxes is the use of kind of archaic symbols that you rarely, if ever, see in reality. So like badly drawn backwards swastikas. Um nooses and hanging ropes, this kind of thing. I would be I would be inclined to believe it if someone drew, say, a picture of Groiper on a black student residence. I mean, there are there are plenty of bigots today, but it, it's very unlikely that they're going to be dressing up like Confederate generals or something like that in this day and age. So I mean, there there have been incidents, uh, Yasmin Saweed, Covington Catholic, Bubba Wallace, that were almost as ridiculous. But I mean, this one was a full-on felony criminal allegation, and it involved just sort of all the elements. No one was supposed to talk about it for weeks. And I, I think that's why this became so famous. Now, can we talk about in the aftermath? Uh, Christine uh, last night sent me something from the uh, Washington Post's. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the no, newsletter. Politico, Politico's Excuse recast. Me, Politico's recast. It's yeah. a sort of a, 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 a racial politics newsletter that goes to the the greatest uh, example of the response to the hate crime hoax. Like, I think the originating hate crime hoax that we that we can think of is uh, Tawana Brawley's uh, a false claim of having been uh, raped in uh, in um, uh, Westchester or Purchase County in, in New York in, uh, in, in the late 80s. Uh, and that w- once it became clear that she had lied about this, this, this rape by a white man, uh, the the tenor of the coverage uh, by people who had been credulous about it, um, which also involved this wildly cinematic stuff, right? That she had been left in an alley, she had been smeared with feces, because of course that's something that rapists often do after they rape someone is they 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 find feces and they smear them on on the person that they raped um, and all of that. That that we were told that nonetheless, despite the fact that this was uh, fake, it we we had gotten a glimpse of a really important truth. Uh, in the Tawana Brawley uh, case, and um, this uh, the Politico recast essentially kind of said the same thing about uh, Jesse Smollett. Like he's an idiot. He did this to help his career. That was really, really stupid. But you know, now they're going to throw the book at him, and they didn't throw the book at the Central Park Karen. Uh, charges were dropped against her. So because that's the case, uh, Jesse Smollett is probably going to go to jail, and that will reveal the terrible inequality at the heart and root of our justice system. So you have this second stage in the hate crime hoax of the the people who fell for it uh, not going, oh, man, I feel so stupid. I am so stupid, and maybe I need to reexamine my priors that made it possible for me to believe this a patently false thing. Uh, they try 
to reconcile whatever happened with what they want to be the truth rather than what is the truth. Yeah, I mean, so the Tawana Brawley case actually is pretty similar to the Jesse Smollett case. If you look at the elements that we're talking about here. So, I mean, the initial wild, incredible story. I mean, at one point, if I recall the case correctly, she claimed that she'd been assaulted by a police officer. She claimed that uh, Pagones, if I have that correct. A district attorney, right? An assistant district attorney. The DA had showed up at the scene and apparently attacked her. Everyone, again, every sort of proper person was uh, kind of forced to agree with this. Uh, I've looked at some of the editorials from the time when I was putting together hate crime hoax. You have, again, the archaic sort of symbology. Apparently, KKK was written on her body. Um, obviously, this was this was uncovered as a proven fake, and Brawley has never admitted that this was a hoax. Uh, I actually, I didn't really track her down. I mean, she seems a normal enough person at this point in her life. But uh, during the course of writing the book, I mean, we found that she was, uh, she's working as a nurse in, I believe, Virginia. She's just gone on with her life, never said that this, this was a hoax. And the claim, and John, you outlined this pretty well, the claim was that this somehow does reflect a deeper reality about our society, even if it never happened. Um, I guess one sentence about that, it would be that that's, that's ridiculously untrue. Uh, inter, in, violent interracial crime involving blacks and whites is t- on a typical year, two or 3% of crime, it's 80 to 90% black on white. I mean, this isn't, uh, I mean, I, the line I usually use is person most likely to kill is your wife, but this, this isn't a major problem in our society, brutal interracial crime. And it certainly isn't one ladder initiated by whites. A final line about this, I guess the reason the central park Karen wouldn't go to jail is that wasn't a formal criminal case, right? This was right. This was two idiots yelling at each other. And she said, I'll oh, call the police. And the black guy said, no, no, you won't. And they were filming each other. I mean, I, I would say she, be, she behaved more poorly in that situation, but there, there are no criminal charges fileable for, you know, arguing on internet video. Jussie Smollett called the police and filed felony charge or attempted initiated a felony criminal case. There wasn't a suspect who didn't file charge, but that's how this became a formal hate crime hoax. I just want to say, uh, I think there's another element here that makes it such a big case, an archetypal case, which is that um, unlike so many others, this one uh, was a twofer in terms of identity. Uh, He was, he was, he was going for the, he was reaching for the brass ring um, because it was, you know, he was, he was, he is black and gay. And this, this, if, if, uh, if he pulled it off, this would have been an indictment of not only the country's racism, but it's homophobia as well. And of course being, and being attacked not only by white people, but by white people wearing hats that said MAGA. Yeah. But so if we, I, I think actually, if we should take them at their word and say, there is a broader social claim we can make about this case, but it's just not the one they think it is. The broader social claim is, if you if you if you buy into this narrative about race and if you buy into this structural oppression uh, talk, as the media clearly does, as many in the league clearly do, you can get away with a lot. Like this is actually something we see this with all the people who are impersonating, you know, Native Americans to get academic credentials and whatnot. But the hypocrisy, I think, people are starting to notice. I, I always think of this when I came across. I'm following the the parents who've been charged in the school shooter case. The what the white kid who shot a bunch of uh, shot and murdered some of his classmates and his parents have been charged. I'm totally on board with that because they're clearly they 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 knew this kid was high risk and they had a gun in the house. They they should be charged. 
But why don't we talk about the gangbangers who go on the streets every night and shoot people at the age of 12 and 13 with illegal guns? Why aren't we prosecuting their parents, too? So, like, if you're going to prosecute the parents in the first case, you should be consistent and prosecute the parents in the second case. So this these inconsistencies are not helping um, the uh, the argument that I think a lot of progressives and justice reformers are trying to make. It doesn't encourage sympathy when when they see very clear it's unjust to prosecute some people because of their race and not others. This is the root of the argument that progressive prosecutors make. But they're doing it just against white people in one situation and not against black people in another and that's unjust I, I feel like in a world where the crime rate goes down and down and down and down which is the world in the united states from 1994 to 2018 um that um unusual crimes weird crimes strange crimes there's some basis or reason for people to get consumed or obsessed with them because they're not really afraid of they've they've lost the fear of conventional crime the daily fear of conventional crime that gripped the country pretty much for the first 35 years of my life um and and you know like genuinely gripped them people had to wherever you lived you had sort of routes you didn't go at night places you didn't walk things you didn't do risks you didn't take and all of that and then this crime drop happened and everything changed and people started like falling in love with true crime podcasts and true crime this and true crime that because because crime was an abstraction and therefore it became a sort of narrative focus and so in some weird ways on in these moments you can sort of understand the notion of crime mostly being symbolic so when it happens it has a larger meaning because it did, crime generally doesn't happen so why on earth was george zimmerman following Trayvon Martin. I mean, you know, America's safe. What was he doing there? Why was he doing that? That that kind of thing, the, the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case itself was a species of uh, George Zimmerman's like uh, behavior, sort of hyper aware behavior at a time when we needed, we didn't need that kind of hyper aware behavior the way people in the country once did. When you take a big shift and we have this giant crime surge, and the and people particularly politicized people are still more interested in symbolic crimes that tell you something about the nature of our society rather than the fact that in 10 cities the murder rate is now higher than it was during the crack epidemic and uh people are finding it increasingly unnerving to go down the streets of major cities at night and where we have this massive form of cultural disorder and decay in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, here in New York, in other places with public displays of defecation, uh, you know, uh, public sex, open, open, you know, injection of narcotics, all of that garbage, uh, making the streetscape unlivable, repulsive, disgusting, and, and, and a place that you want to flee. That's what people now care about. And the notion that we have our liberal intelligentsia that still wants to focus on one kid in Kenosha, one case in Georgia, or even Jussie Smollett and the meaning of this terrible thing, rather than having conversations about what are we going to do to make sure this country doesn't slide into death wish again 
it's just we, we find ourselves in an interesting place there because crime is not symbolic now in America as it was 10 years ago. Crime is now an actual living, breathing threat to everybody in a way that it just didn't feel like it was then. Yeah, I, I would actually say there's something of a predictable cycle here in that when crime is low, people, especially among the left intelligentsia, focus on these sort of sensational crimes that are supposed to represent society and use them to argue for sweeping systemic changes. I mean, given that crime is down, how can we tolerate the sort of brutal policing that gave us George Floyd? I mean, that was, that was essentially Black Lives Matter's argument. Uh, crime is at low levels. We don't know why that is. It's complicated. Let's not be unsophisticated about it. That's always the argument. But we have the police out here, you know, murdering innocent black men, and this needs to change. And that was the basis of the defund the police movement. Um, the, the variable here, if you're doing social science research that matters, actually, is the number of police stops. I mean, we've seen that decline over the past couple of years. And the thing that's absolutely predictable about this as an urban resident, as I think all of us are, is that crime will then rise again. You know, this too will be described as mysterious and hard to understand and due to multiple factors, it must be the pandemic. And eventually people will get tired of seeing all this crime and say, we need more tough cops on the street. And then crime will mysteriously decline. I mean, it's a last sense. I mean, I grew, I think you guys are New Yorkers, so the situation is probably even worse. But I mean, I grew up in Chicago in the 1990s and as a high school kid and competent athlete, it actually was a lot of fun. But I mean, people would just get on trains and start painting graffiti or hooking up. I mean, you'd see massive brawls in public. You know, I'd take my skateboard, jump off the train and go buy bums and, you know, all this thing. People decorating the walls with their you know, unique names and signatures. And as an adult, I mean, I would have found the situation entirely unlivable, but it's also entirely predictable. I mean, if you reduce the number of police stops by 60 percent, the only innovation Giuliani and Bratton really made with broken windows policing is we're going to put a lot of cops on the street and arrest people for misdemeanors. When you stop doing that, you get more misdemeanors and thus more felonies and thus more crime. The cycle begins again. I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite works of American sociology is a book called Murder in New York City by a now, uh, now deceased Eric Munconan, who was a pro professor at the University of Minnesota, and he did this hundred year study of the crime waves and and uh you know sort of the tides of crime in in new york in new york city and what he found was a cycle and the cycle was there would be a crime wave there would be a public response to the crime wave that would crack down and the crackdown would often be i wouldn't say extra legal but it was like you know what was important was getting crime down and the niceties were much less important so you get a 20-year cycle where there's a crackdown. And uh, things happen as a result of the crackdown. Unjust arrests, a lot of people in jail, ugly scenes in, in correction, uh, that kind of thing that then lead to liberal reformers saying, we've gone too far. This has gone too far. We're now, we're now sweeping people in who really didn't commit crimes or aren't really that bad. We need to change. We need to fix it. And 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 they shock the conscience over time with case stories about terrible overreaches and bad behavior by police and corrections officers and all of that. And then corruption in the police department or in or in public safety generally. And then there is a loosening. And there's a loosening because it all seems it's kind of a consensus view. It's gone too far. Stopping for two, you know, in the most recent, it's like. Okay, look, you can't just stop 600,000 people. 
and frisk them. I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's so terrible. Like you're just creating a terrible, horrible atmosphere. You can't do it. Stop it. Everyone's like, I, well, I'm okay. That's really, I, I granted that's too much. I mean, I couldn't imagine it's so terrible. So you stop it. So you stop. So on the one hand, you still use the logic of what we need to do is get guns off the street. That's what we have to do. Guns are killers and you have to get guns off the street. And the only way to get guns off the street is stop and frisk. There is no other way except for some, you know, I mean, there, I don't know, except for like using a metal detector on, on everybody, uh, which is also people complain about if you put metal detectors in schools. So, um, so you have to get guns off the street, but you, you deny yourself the policy that allows you to get guns off the street. Then you change the policy. It's no longer the policy. And then you say, well, there are too many people who were sent in jail by this policy. So then you want to do early release bail reform and that happens. And then suddenly crime shoots way up. And now we are going to see, I believe at some point in the next four or five years, the crackdown is going to start again. The question is who's going to start it and how, and what are the political consequences going to be for the people who don't do it quickly enough. It took a long time for the crackdown that led to Giulianiism in 1993-1994. Took a long time. New York Death Wish, which is a weirdly accurate depiction of the mood in New York in 1974, was filmed in my neighborhood that I grew up in. That was almost 20 years before Giuliani came in and said, "We've got to, you know, we're going to we're going to use these new policies to combat crime." 20 years like this is a long cycle but life everything is shortening in time and everyone is aware of things in time and when we get back from this first break i want to talk about what 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 kinds of measures might happen that will move this along much more quickly than people have before but first before i do that i want to report that we got an email last night listens to us and listens to ben shapiro i'm now once again talking about my friend ben shapiro i remember the other day i told you that that uh that uh, our uh we had two young listeners uh, who couldn't decide whether they liked our podcast better than ben's or, or not and so i named them and uh basically to win to win this battle against ben which is a losing battle but we but in advertiser terms we had somebody write us to say that he was so blown away by noah's endorsement of our next advertiser, Bolin Branch, and its sheets, and 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 the the quality there, and and Noah's own enthusiasm for it. That even though he's been listening to Bolin Branch ads by Ben Shapiro, he finally ordered the Bolin Branch sheets because of Noah. Because of Noah. Noah, tell everybody why you like those Bolin Branch sheets again. Because if we got one sale, God knows how many sales we're going to get now that you know that someone has privileged you over Ben Shapiro as a salesman for Bowling Brad Sheets. Well, much like Daffy Duck guzzling gasoline, I can only do it once. So I, uh, I regret that uh, I may not be able to, uh, to duplicate that performance, but I am sincere in my endorsement of these sheets. They're the only sheets that I sleep on. And uh, <clears throat> when they're, you know, after a week, throw them in the wash, throw them right back on the bed. They get more comfortable with every wash. They fit on your mattress. They don't escape the mattress when you're shuffling around in the middle of the night. And um, they are very luxurious and very well packaged. They actually came in a very teeny little box and it was it was nice and, you know, uh, uh, attractive. And um, uh, yeah, we like them very much. So yes, go out and buy them. Make Ben Shapiro squeal at how much we outsell him and out endorse him, uh, it will uh, ruin his day. 
guarantee you. I don't know that it will ruin his day, <laughs> but I, I do think that a healthy competition between between commentary and 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 Ben Shapiro is a slightly comic matter, but nonetheless, uh, here here we are. Uh, ben Shapiro, of course, a close friend of mine and of commentaries and our 2019 commentary roasty. So this is all all in good fun. What's not in good fun, but is in good odor, is Bowen Branch Sheets, produced by husband and wife team Scott and Missy Tannen founded the company to create a new standard in betting by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Bowen Branch hold themselves to high standards across the board from sourcing pure organic cotton to putting workers' rights first. And it's not just their sheets that are made the right way. Their pillows, bath towels, and robes are two signature hem sheets, their all-time bestseller, beloved for so many reasons, like how they get softer with every single wash. Buttery, soft, lightweight, made with 100% organic cotton weave that feels incredible in all seasons. Wide range of colors and all sizes, from twin up to California King, completely toxin free, fair trade certified. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard embedding from Bowen Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in special holiday packaging, as beautiful as the as the packaging that Noah got, which was not holiday packaging. Order by December nineteenth. That's four days from now for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Shop the holiday semi annual sale from twelve through today. Through today, through 1215, semi-annual sale, and get 20% off at bowlandbranch.com. So till midnight tonight, get 20% off. That's bowl, B-O-L-L, and branch.com. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. Will, so here's 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 what I'm here's what I'm seeing. As I said, it may have taken 20 years for the for the need to have a radical change in crime policy to really hit America over the course of a lot of social science, a lot of studies, a lot of this, a lot of that. Well, we've been through this crime drop. Now we've seen a crime surge. We've been through Black Lives Matter protests and everything that happened last year. And uh, the reaction seems to be coming now decades faster than it did last time. Can I just jump in? I, I think yeah. there's, there's a there's a very important specific reason, at least a partial reason for that. Uh, and that is because uh, 2020 and 2021 are night and day. Um, last year was lockdown America. And I think this in two ways fed uh, and now starves um, what was going on. Um, in the first, uh, there is no longer, now that people are out on the street, there is no longer this need for the cause uh, as desperately. Uh, people, don't, people don't feel the need to embrace uh, Black Lives Matter and, and anti-police brutality in the way they did when they had absolutely nothing going on in their lives. Um, so they are less sympathetic. Two, people are out on the streets now uh, living their lives and are, are sort of first noticing or having be begun to first notice um, the, the dire circumstances on the streets. So what I'm thinking is uh, there's a very interesting piece in Puck, the, uh, the, the, the new sort of high-end newsletter by Teddy Schleifer about uh, the controversies surrounding Chesa Boudin, the district attorney of San Francisco, uh, who is now subject to a recall. And what, what's, what is interesting is uh, we've talked about Chesa Boudin before. I don't want to go, so go retail into the he is somebody who came in saying, you know, look, I'm the son of somebody who was in who, people who were in prison. His parents were, of course, no, notorious Brinks job terrorists, weathermen uh, raised by another accused terrorist, w William Ayers, while his parents were in prison. So he knows prison, he knows the horrors of prison. And, you know, there's got to be a better way than prison. And, and, and he's the guy who can show us the better way. And he got elected and, you know, very self-satisfied, very progressive. 
San Francisco just at a time as San, that San Francisco streetscape is essentially becoming a hellscape. And that's what everybody says. Nobody is downtown anymore. Nobody wants to go to Market Street anymore. Uh, everything is disgusting. Uh, homeless encampments, uh, 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 as I said, like physical, uh, be personal, physical comportment and behavior that no civilized society, can, you know, can ever allow in its, you know, in its in its collective spaces and all of that. And um, what's interesting is that uh, the the recall effort uh, by him is, uh, in, is is in part being spearheaded by progressive ultra rich people some of whom supported his candidacy, but who are now looking at the consequences of the policies that they thought would be so nice and kind and progressive and wonderful and saying, my daughter can't walk six blocks to an ice cream parlor without carrying pepper spray. And I don't want to live in a world like that. And this is the literal definition of the 1960s, the shift to the right urban in the 1960s, which is a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. That was the famous joke line. A conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. The neoconservative is the liberal who's been mugged by reality. But the but the but the the guy in Death Wish, the architect Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson in Death Wish, is a bleeding heart liberal whose wife, uh, you know, whose wife is murdered and daughter is raped. Um, uh in in, the, in his apartment and then he sort of goes out and becomes a vigilante because a conservative is a liberal whose wife has been whose family has been mugged and i'm i'm only using that continue using the death wish thing because it it makes this interesting point which is this is the kind of thing you disrupt people's lives on a daily basis at the root of their lives in front of their houses on their blocks down the street from them and while they think that their money is all supposed to go to, as this piece says, global warming initiatives and in income inequality salvations and whatever else that it is, uh, they didn't make a billion dollars and buy a house on Lombard Street or wherever they're living in Pacific Heights uh, in order to have to dodge feces, human feces on the street. That's not how they want to live. And... Um, they're losing their sense of guilt over being forced to live that way. And I don't know what the longer-term consequences of that are going to be, but they pre present a very interesting sociological model for the 2020s, that these people are seeing in real time the real-life consequences to their lives and their children's lives and the people around them's lives of liberal policies that they endorsed 17 seconds ago. I mean, just very briefly, like this is this cycle has occurred literally every time we've seen these changes in criminal justice from the social science standpoint. I mean, between 1963 and 1993, we saw crime increase about 400 percent. Murders went from something like 8000 to something like 25000. I mean, in San Francisco, you're seeing a lot of this now. I mean, sort of the pre Giuliani, pre broken window stuff that New York saw, Chicago saw. The one thing I will say in terms of uh, Abe's last set of comments, one thing that's kind of speeding this up, I think, is just the reality of social and modern media. So, I mean, you can just log on and see videos of people, you know, running through malls with, you know, gunny sacks full of looted purses and so on. So, I don't think there is going to be 20 years of wondering why crime is going up this time. I mean, in San Francisco, I mean, you're seeing you're seeing the organ. And I've, I've looked at some of this after looking at the article. I mean, a lot of this is 
very e it's very organized online i mean there are recall petitions you can sign facebook groups you can join so i think that modern link media makes everything happen faster so we'll probably see this cycle speed up so that it's four or five years like after the first wave of black lives matter riots as odd as that description sounds i mean 2015 2016 we saw the quote-unquote ferguson effect then we saw the police kind of return to the previous number of stops then we saw the pandemic and george floyd i mean so it, it, it's happening in a more condensed fashion, I think. There's is there's also a weird element. The, cl- the class issue here is particularly in San Francisco is funny because in some ways the tech bros are fighting a proxy war using crime. You know, the, it, Ch- Chesa Boudin becomes the sort of proxy. But I'm struck by the fact that they are actually wanting to change politics on the ground because their whole scheme has always been government is slow, sclerotic. It's, in, it's inefficient. We don't like it. We can solve things with an app. What they're finding is when they live in the real world, which they all still have to do, it's not so easy to just, you know, create an app for that. There's no Uber for crime, right? I mean, there's nothing, there's only alerts that it's happening, but you still need the power of the state to to monitor uh, criminal behavior. I think there's also another thing going on here, and it and I thought about it when I read Sam Tannenhaus wrote a long essay about January 6th and, and vigilantism on the right, which was... I didn't totally agree with his pieces in the post over the weekend. But but there, what struck me as interesting is that you do see in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse and others when uh, this use of vigilante, right? The wealthy can outsource their security and pay for security when the state can't provide it for them. Everyone else cannot afford that. I cannot afford a personal security guard to make sure when my kids are coming home after practice at dark at the bus stop where they have to wait where somebody was mugged last week. I can't provide them with 24 hour security. The wealthy can do that for themselves. But the fact that in San Francisco, the breakdown has become so impossible to ignore that even the wealthy who can provide for their own security are concerned about the state of their city. That's gotten pretty bad. But that's precisely the point you see in a city like San Francisco or in a place like Manhattan, the wealthy can't gate very well. I mean, there are ways to gate, right? A doorman building is a, is a gated community of a kind. But believe me that doorman buildings uh, in a time of rising crime are not necessarily particularly safe. And the tech bros who are living in San Francisco are living in houses. They're living in houses, beautiful old magnificent houses on pacific heights and they can't protect themselves in the same way they have to live in a streetscape in a cityscape that's why they're there they don't want to live in mill valley they don't want to live in san mateo they don't want to live where their kids have to drive everywhere they want to live in a walking city where they can enjoy the fruits of urban of urban life which have many downsides but the upside of urban life is that you are your feet are part of your transportation alternatives um and 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 your the ability to go to a restaurant your neighborhood doesn't mean you have to climb in a car and all of that stuff and if you deny that to people if you make it impossible for people to have that cities themselves become unlivable uh, and you only live there if you are forced and compelled to. That's why I was so struck by the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, herself a very, very significant progressive, went nuts on Tuesday. She gave a press conference on Tuesday, and this is what she said. This is not Christine Rosen talking, and this is not Will Riley talking. It is time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come 
to an end. And it comes to an end when we take steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. We are going to turn this around. She used the word bullshit. This is a city that has a population of less than 1 million people with an over $12 billion budget. The residents of this city have been extremely generous in providing us with the resources we need to make a difference. And now the priorities we need to make must be to protect them, must be to turn things around in their neighborhoods. When you were in a room full of people, I would say probably anywhere between 90 to 95% of folks could raise their hand and say that either their car has been broken into or they've been a victim in some capacity or another. That is not okay. That is not acceptable. That is the mayor of San Francisco speaking. It's, it is acceptable, um, to Christine's point, if you are wealthy, for example, a few weeks ago, the actor Seth Rogen was on Twitter. Did any of you guys see this? And someone in LA was talking about the crime in uh, in, in the city and complaining. And uh, Seth Rogen dropped in to say something like, come on, man, what's the big deal? I, I've, I've gotten my car broken into 20 times in LA. That's just part of living in a big city. Um, I think what's interesting in particular about what's going on with the tech bros here is that they are, it's not terribly surprising that they're coming hard at Chesa Boudin because even those among them who identify as liberal to some extent are simultaneously kind of in service to what they consider uh, an even uh, sort of greater higher ideology, some sort of techno-messianism that I think is their true uh, first love. And after all, they're all capitalists and they have sort of some confused libertarian leanings among them. Um, so they can, they have the space to be able to say, uh, look, we are really the saviors. Your, your little leftist game here is, is, is kind of not working out. Let me just throw some money at it, at it and, 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 and get rid of it. Well, I think also they had this idea that they could throw money at progressives and sue for peace over the things that they like that progressives don't like, like, like the horrors of income inequality, which they themselves give pay lip service to, but are, of course, the great beneficiaries of. And so I, the joke in San Francisco, of course, is that Mark Zuckerberg pay, gave the hospital $75 million. And then the city council voted that the hospital should not rename its wing after Zuckerberg because he's a, he's a force for evil. Uh, so, I mean, this is the mindset that's going on there. And uh, I just think hearing London Breed talk, that is a sign of a very significant change in the weather. You cannot listen to that or read these articles we talked about the other day about the upcoming mayor's race in Los Angeles, in which the guy who runs the Grove Shopping Center said he, he's probably going to run, and he's going to run as a Republican, and he's going to run saying... I'm a victim of this policy, which has involved mobs attacking stores in my shopping center and getting away with it and nobody arresting them. And, and if they're arrested, they're turned back out on the street because they haven't stolen enough money, haven't stolen goods over $1,000 and are therefore subject to release. We cannot have this anymore. And you listen to that and you think, Maybe it's crazy right now to think a Republican could be the mayor of Los Angeles, but crazier things have happened. 
way crazier things have happened. Uh, you know, remember New York uh, elected four in five consecutive terms people who were nominally Republicans with a five to six to one Democratic uh, registration majority because the public would not or could not trust Democrats to hold power in the city any longer. That was a 20-year reign, if you want to consider Bloomberg a Republican. I mean, he's nominally, now he's a Democrat, whatever. But it was like, no, you had your shot. Look at the steaming pile of crap you've left here. These guys have got to come pick it up. And we could see stuff happening in the next 12 to 24 months that are that are that are gonna that are gonna like reor reorganize and reorient American politics in a different fashion, simply because the consequences of these policies have been so quick, so radical, like so the results have been so horrible. Like nothing we've ever seen with this kind of speed. And with that, let me also now talk to you about our second advertiser of the day. Uh, Bambi. Uh, Bambi uh, is help for your HR because, you know, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business, help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. All right. What else do we what else do we want to talk about here? Noah's laughing on mute. I was conspicuously silent during the crime thing, and now I feel like I'm failing. By not okay. having another I have one for about. Noah. Noah, your governor is starting to become less COVID hawkish in his recent statements. I was reading he's he was sort of saying, gee, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, continuing to force draconian measures on the populace masking about masking in general. So I hadn't maybe, seen that. Maybe, yeah. Fill me in on the details. Well, just basically that that has been, you know, he's he's been one of the obviously, you know, uh, a typical Democrat when it comes to COVID restrictions, but he's been changing his tune. Uh, of late just in talking about it um, i don't believe it uh, <laughs> in the, no in the wake of the, the 2021 elections where he very nearly lost uh to a person who's no one knew or, can, or whose name they can pronounce in the state he's been an elected official in for 20 years um he then sort of did a little pivot and said well okay maybe when we get to a certain threshold of immunization whatever blah 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 we'll we'll talk about getting masks out of the school, they rationalized themselves out of that position very quickly. It wasn't difficult because the people screaming in their ears are the constituencies who like this sort of thing. They they appreciate the COVID regime. They don't want it to go away, whether they tell you that or not. But they are responding to political incentives. Political incentives are plainly obvious to us, and they were plainly obvious to him on the day after he was almost defenestrated, uh, shockingly from the office he holds. So some once in a while, like the crime discussion, in fact, once in a while they get they get a sense 
of the the temperature out there. They can they can feel it and they know what's coming, but then they get talked out of it. Well, I think you're right. He just said he's going to convene a lot of focus groups to help him understand his narrow victory. So that's not going to end well. They're going to there's going to be a very big focus group that will convene on November 8th, 2022, uh, that will deliver a rather definitive verdict, I assume. On a lot of these things, because they don't remember that every election since 2020 has been about COVID and the candidate who wins is the candidate who says, I'm going to get you out of this. And they they don't seem to realize that when they're governing in the opposite direction of what the verdict that the voters render and the mandate they receive. uh, And it's going to come back to bite them in relatively short order. I could tell you guys a a brief story, uh, a personal story. That uh, you know, the worst thing you can do on a on a on a podcast when you don't have anything to say is to go into your person your personal life. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'll do that. In my uh, area, there's a COVID outbreak. Um, people are getting it, breakthrough infections among people who have um, who have the shots, and children are getting it, young children, including mine. My children tested positive. Uh, they are forced out of school for 14 days. You can't test out of it. So if you get a negative test, it doesn't matter. You're still in quarantine. And they they were sick for approximately two hours. They felt kind of fluish. They had a fever and it went away. Um, and yeah, as a result, of the, out of an abundance of caution, they have to self-isolate and we have to stay home and we have to homeschool. And a lot of people have to do that, including people who didn't even test positive. Uh, one of our friends had to self-isolate with her child who didn't test positive. Nobody in the house tested positive, but she had to miss two weeks of work as a result of policies. And my children's experience is not on average. They didn't get lucky. They experienced the overwhelmingly most likely statistical outcome when it comes to this sort of thing. And as a result of an abundance of caution, we're imposing profound social and economic consequences for something that had no relevance to their, to their health life. And I'm not trying to like minimize the experience of certain people who have bad outcomes, which are statistically anomalous, but your experience is statistically anomalous. And we're mitigating against the worst ravages of this thing for people who are in a demographic profile, most of whom are the most people who are unvaccinated are in the demographic profile where your least likely, most likely experience is going to be very, very, very mild illness. And that more and more people are now having a real world firsthand experience with this. And I guarantee you, they're not going to take it much longer. Yeah. That's- oh, they're going to take it. Yeah, well, no, you've been saying this that. forever, John. And I disagree with you forever. I know because, because I, I've been right. I've been right. They, Cause they are Joe taking Biden, it. Who said, I'm going to get you out of this 2021. They voted for Republicans across the board who said they're going to get you out of this. They I know pollsters one thing and they go into the ballot box and do something. No, very. I different. agree with you. I agree with you. There's going to be a cataclysm in November 2022, but they're going to take it now. They're this taking it now. where you are. I mean, not not at all to break in there, but in, in Kentucky, yeah. in urban Kentucky, like Cincinnati, Louisville, I mean, cities as large as those anywhere, we locked down for a couple of weeks. I mean, there was it just extraordinary disaffection from the population. People started going online, looking at the actual IFR as opposed to CFR for COVID by probably June of 2020. I mean, the the only requirement was been almost for a sake of politeness, you'd wear a light mask when you were indoors. So I, I think that really varies in terms of where you are. 
Uh, COVID itself, when we're talking about quality of life issues, is obviously probably the predominant quality of life issue right now. Uh, I personally am a little surprised that so many regions of the country post-vaccination have continued with the measures that we've seen. I mean, we now know we're talking about a virus with a 0.26 IFR, I believe, for healthy adults. Vaccinations are widely available. They reduce the risk of at least death and severe um, outcomes hospitalization by about 90%. But this is continuing as though none of that were the case. And I, I find that absolutely bizarre. In one sentence, I think the difference is that rich people tend to support the COVID regime. I mean, your argument when you're talking about- Precisely right. It's all about class. Yeah. Yeah. but It's like, all about class. Guess who runs the world? The ruling class. The ruling class runs the world, right? There is a ruling class. There is, a, there is in some ways a, more, a deeper and more complex ruling class than we've ever had before because it isn't just about money, right? It's about money. It's about educational achievement. It's about titles. It's about, you know, it's about being the guy that the wizard, uh, you know, pins the diploma on. Uh, which um, brings us to Cornell. Even though he has no brain. Which brings us to Cornell, the Cornell story. Ah, uh, yes, please. Uh, well, so at uh, Cornell University, they did uh, some students uh, in their blood samples. They, they took tests that were they detected some uh, some Omicron. Uh, they don't know how much. Um, so Cornell went into like red alert measures, whatever whatever they call it. They're on. I think it is literally called red alert or something yeah. like that. No, they sent everybody home. They shut. They sent everyone home. home. They shut down the libraries. Finals are uh, being taken online. Ninety-seven percent of the population of Cornell is is vaccinated. Ninety-seven percent. That is hysteria. It's hysteria. Right. I did a little it's bit of research on this morning. Panic. The vaccine yeah, but, Omicron, which is the mildest COVID variant, right. none of this makes any sense at all. Right. By the way, not 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 according to the the Times, the New York Times story on it. Uh, somewhere toward the end says, you know, Omicron is fast moving, but. We don't yet know how severe it is. We don't know, okay. yet know how the, the South Africans. Why don't we? Has, has it happened the two weeks past? <laughs> no, we need yes. two more weeks. So yeah. anyway, two more weeks. I did a little bit of research on this, this Ithaca thing because I'm going to be um, uh, writing about it, I think, later on today because the phrase abundance of caution now justifies abject madness. It is, it is, it is what you say before the thing you say afterwards is utterly irrational. Um, and it's having profound consequences, not just... You know, the cancellation of choruses where everybody's vaccinated or NBA games where everybody's vaccinated. The State Department canceled a diplomatic jaunt by the by Tony Blinken mid flight turned around because somebody tested positive for COVID. A member Everybody of the is vaccinated there. No one has even the slightest risk of having a bad outcome. And our diploma, our, our face to face diplomatic efforts in Southeast Asia are truncated artificially as a result of this abundance of caution. It's also Quote, the abundance the of caution. Omicron, I just, I just want to read that. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, and also the same with the approval of the Pfizer pill, which is which has had extraordinarily good clinical trials. And now has we all will sit and wait for approval from that, from the FDA. It will, and, and we will, and in the meantime, they're not going to be producing enough of it until they get the approval so that by the time it is approved, when people need it, they, they will not be enough. Quote, the Omicron variant's rapid spread could soon lead to a wave, the CDC warns, is the lead headline in the New York Times this morning. The proportion of coronavirus cases in the United States caused by the Omicron variant has increased sharply and may portend a significant surge in infections as soon as next month, 
according to new data from the CDC. During the week that ended on Saturday, Omicron accounted for 2.9% of cases across the country, up from 4.4% in the previous week. In the region comprising New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, I was unaware that that was a region, but okay, the percentage of Omicron infections had already reached 13.1%. None of that's wrong. None of that's wrong. Guess how many people have died of Omicron in the United States? Zero. There isn't a single person dead of Omicron in the United States. There may be one person dead in Britain. Maybe what we want is for this to surge. Maybe a surge of this would be the greatest thing that happened and will get us out of this. That is at least as logical as panicking about the surge, right? I mean, that just just as a matter of logic, you but would say story, you might, yes. That story and this, my experience is that the the elite, the ruling class, has adopted a policy of COVID zero. They're not saying it outright, but their policies are to prevent infections. They measure success by transmission rates, and they measure failure by transmission rates, and they measure vulnerability and threat levels by caseloads. And that is the precise wrong way to do this. We all understood that that was the wrong way to do this a year ago. And all of a sudden, it just sort of reversed course. Right. I don't know how so, that happened, but it's, a, it, it's an interesting psychological uh, inclination and one that is um, really burdensome and onerous and impossible to succeed if you have adopted it. It's, it's self-defeating. I feel like I feel like we're the uh, we're the council of war in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida sitting around in the 10th year of the of the Trojan conflict, sitting outside the walls of Troy, uh, not knowing what to do and simply saying the same things over and over and over again as they can't really figure out how to breach the walls like. The only thing that gets us out of this is Biden shifting gears. And, uh, you know, uh, it would be nice if Biden could shift gears that might require him having more than one gear and that gear being higher than low. So, I mean, I I don't really understand where we're going. That's why no no one I are in agreement and disagreement. And we have been forever, which is that he's like, people aren't going to put up with this. And I'm like, when people people are going to punish everybody who did this to them but until they actually have the means and wherewithal to punish them they are going to put up with this because americans are not scoff laws uh, despite what people think and they basically generally follow the rules that are being laid out for them even if they follow them very grudgingly and they wear do they do this or they do that or do they do they, they follow the rules in their in their own place and now politicians genuinely don't know what to do that's Kathy Hochul of New York putting a mask mandate on and then suspending its enforcement it's the perfect compromise there's a mask mandate and everyone must be vaccinated and everyone no no one over the age of 5 can go to any indoor event without being vaccinated but if you don't enforce it that's I'll give you this one <clears throat> Los Angeles school board suspended the implementation of its vaccine mandate for students it's supposed to go in effect January it's now going to go in effect next fall because 28,000 students didn't comply yeah. Is this a mandate or isn't it do these circumstances that resulted in this policy merit such an extraordinary intervention or don't they? In most of the heartland, people just ignored the silly rules and they went away pretty quickly. I mean, strategy. 
what didn't they ignore? That's what's interesting about this. What didn't they ignore? They didn't ignore vaccination. of Americans over the age of 18 have had at least one shot. They did not ignore vaccination. I think vaccination is a little different. I mean, vaccination makes sense. Right. Yeah. That's right. I'm I'm like triple vaccinated. So I I think even in the heartland, although you do see much lower rates among Republicans, among African-Americans, I mean, among many groups. But I mean, I think even in the heartland, people were very glad to go to the clinic, get the doses. The question was, are you going to walk around with two masks on outdoors during blossom season because the government says to? And nobody right. did. But and the, right. 20, 28,000 students not getting vaccinated is noncompliance. But it's also not entirely irrational. Well, yeah, this that's is not no- something that we can't. We, this is something that policymakers refuse to say. It's, a, it's something you can't say in polite conversation that these people have made a rational assessment of their level of risk. Well, they are California the information that we that we know and not getting vaccinated. If you're a kid while well, I'm getting my children vaccinated and I think you should, too. It's not a crazy thing to say my lit risk level is low because you know what it is. Yeah, but your risk level from measles is low too, and there are your plenty of people in from, southern from and northern California who didn't get. Falling on you is low. No, what I'm saying is, this sort of thing. There's there something very specific under, to California with this. Anti-vaxxing has a very specific role and place in California, and has over the last thirty years. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so. Oh, it's commonsensical. There, I'm sure more than two thirds of those people are, are are bonkers. They're they're bonkers, lunatic people who 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 oppose vaccination and think that vaccination is evil. And so, I'm not saying that that's not a rational choice because they're based in irrationality. That's my presumption, but I, I could be wrong, as I often am. I'm not going to tell you when I'm wrong, though, because I don't I don't want to do that. But I do want to tell you something that's right, and that is David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch. 250 economic truths. Please go ahead and get it for your for the person you can't think of a good Christmas present for, because this is a good Christmas present. David Bonson's journey through the 250 great ideas that combine the need for human flourishing with the um, history and principles of economics and the need for ordered liberty. Uh, this is a book that will educate, that will inform, that will provide you with material to argue with that recalcitrant uncle at your Christmas dinner, um, or maybe to uh, inform your uncle better about what it is that he believes, but does not have the proper uh, scholarly and intellectual grounding to argue. And he wants to go argue with other friends at other places. That is David Bonson's terrific book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and wherever you get your fine books. It's B-A-H-N-S-E-N, David Bonson of the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. So we got to go, but I do want to make one final point. Back in Back in March or April, I predicted that the new version of West Side Story uh, the Steven Spielberg version of West Side Story would be canceled on the grounds that it was the work. Uh, it was a work about Puerto Ricans uh, in part, and that um, and that it was, but it had been written and produced and directed by a bunch of Jewish men, and that uh, it would get canceled. And guess what? Today it was canceled uh, in the pages of the New York Times, um, famously uh, uh, the New York Times by Yaramar Bonilla, the director of Centro, the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. 
Okay, who, by the way, announces that he never saw the original West Side Story because growing up in Puerto Rico, I never had to search for myself in the side plots of Hollywood. So he's never seen West Side Story, uh, which is insane. Uh, then uh, he says, in developing his 2021 remake, Steven Spielberg vowed not to repeat the mistakes of the past that he doesn't know about since he didn't see West Side Story. He hosted town halls in Puerto Rico to gather input, enlisted the support of prominent historians, community advisors, and a bevy of accent coaches and consultants. The Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, the Research Center and Historical Archive I now direct, assisted the film screener Tony Kushner as he was preparing the new version of the script. Mr. Kushner immersed himself in our archives, obsessively making sure the historical references were accurate, the cultural detail plausible. They say the devil's in the details, and there are many that this film gets right from the pale blue of the Puerto Rican flag on the nationalist murals. That's really hard to get a flag right. I mean, thank God for the details. That's really amazing to the specificity of slang words. Okay. So Spielberg did what you're supposed to do. And so did Coney Kushner, right? They went and they bought off the activists. They, they consulted with them and they probably gave them contract. They hired them. They did this and they did that. Right. And they got all the details, right? Guess what? Not good enough. It's never good enough because here's the sentence that follows that. But just because a historical text is accurate, does that make it authentic? The small details might be right, but the meaning and overall purpose are muddled at best. So, uh, it's the my, it's the my truth problem. It's the my truth problem right there. So, here's my advice to all of you who want to get yourself not canceled stop buying off. The con artists, you can't do it. You can't pay them enough to shut them up. When they see that the box office returns are low, as happened with West Side Story, which is a magnificent piece of work, by the way. You can read my review at freebeacon.com. Best movie of the year. Remarkable achievement. I didn't expect it. Nonetheless, box office receipts are low. You can't buy these people off because their whole thing is I'm the only one who is allowed to talk about anything in my area. You're not allowed to. Don't you come on my turf. It's the West Side Story story. This guy is Bernardo. Tony Kushner is Riff. Now there's a rumble. Riff shouldn't have paid off Bernardo. It doesn't work. That's my peroration on this subject. <laughs> If you guys seem seem absolutely silenced by the by the passion and gravity of what I've just said to you, so I will thank Will Riley, Wilfred Riley, for joining us as usual. Always a joy, always a pleasure. And for Abe Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.